Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers! It's a moment the fans of the number 4064 have been eagerly waiting for. It's Bugle, issue 4064, for the week beginning Monday, the 2nd of April. 2018. Uh, you're going to be waiting a while for a year with that number, so please do enjoy this. Uh, Olympic year, of course, 4064, so it is going to be a good one. But according to my predictor, the weather's <laughs> going to be awful. Uh, Britain will still be arguing over whether or not Brexit was a good thing, and Antarctica is going to be the most overpopulated continent in the world. I am Andy Zaltzman, and... I am in my house. Uh, I was going to be in my shed, um, uh, but unfortunately it's raining here in London. <laughs> and the roof of the shed, when it rains, uh, is not adequately soundproofed. Um, but, uh, you know, so I'm unable to do my shed introduction, which included me saying, welcome to the shed, in the immortal words <laughs> of Axel Rose. And uh, I was going to tell you all about the other great works of art that have been created in sheds, including uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet, Prince of Denmark and his magic garden rake, uh, Jane Austen's shed and shedability, George Orwell's animal shed, uh, Damien Hurst's The Physical Impossibility of Death in the Mind of Someone in a Shed, also known as Shark in Shed, and the Sistine, and the Sistine Chapel ceiling, which uh, of course began as the Sistine Shed ceiling. Uh, Pope Julius II just wanted someone to keep his power drills and lawnmowers, and boy did he have a lot of lawnmowers, but he liked it so much he thought... Uh, I'll make this a special Shed of God, or chapel, as they're often known. Joining me this week, via the miracle of modern technology, and not in either my house or a shed, but from the hemisphere into which I will be catapulting myself imminently for my shows at the Melbourne Comedy Festival from the 10th to the 22nd of April, Sydney Comedy Festival on the 23rd and 24th, and the New Zealand Comedy Festival in Wellington on the 30th of April, and Auckland on the 1st and 2nd of May, to you all their details on the internet, all the way from Melbourne. It's the Flamingo Flyer herself, Alice Fraser. Hello, Andy. I am preparing the ground for you as we speak. I am flinging oh. bullshit into passers-by's faces in order to prepare them for your imminent arrival. It's going to be great. <laughs> like a kind of John the Baptist of bullshit. <laughs> yeah, slash monkey. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> very fun. Whatever though. floats your shit-flinging boat, Andy. So the uh, the Melbourne uh, International Comedy Festival begins, uh, well, basically round about now, doesn't it? Tomorrow I open my show Ethos uh, at the Chinese Museum, which is exciting. It's uh, literally a museum, Andy. I am doing comedy <laughs> while being stared down by a terracotta warrior, and it's, it's a thrill. It's a thrill unlike right. any other. And, I mean, does, 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 does the terracotta warrior l like your shtick, or...? A He's pretty deadpan. He was, he was there last year, so he, if he's come back again for another year at the museum, he must have uh, must have enjoyed it. They're known for their loyalty, the Terracotta Warriors. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, we are recording on uh, Wednesday the 28th, recording early this week, because I will, as I said, be flying out uh, of my hemisphere shortly. So apologies if all of this is out of date by the time you listen to it and everything in the world is either fine or completely destroyed. Uh, this uh, coming Sunday... April the 1st, Easter Sunday, and also April Fool's Day. Not the first time those two dates have coincided, <laughs> if I may refer to the very first edition uh, of uh, both. Um, I'm not in my tomb. April Fool. Got yeah. Uh, well, well, of course, Easter, uh, you know, a very prominent uh, uh, festival of chocolate eating. Uh, we discussed the origin of the Easter egg on the bugle 
before. There is still some dispute, it should be said, uh, of our, our, our theory uh, is, is not canonical as yet. The latest theological experts suggest the Easter egg may in fact not be the symbolic uh, jungle globules of Christ after all, but instead the uh, <laughs> symbolic ping-pong balls from the Last Supper when Jesus beat Judas in the final using balls which uh, Judas complained Jesus had turned into unpredictable oval shapes. He did not take that defeat <laughs> at all well. Not at all. Controversial format, of course. Always awkward when 13 people are in a tournament. Uh, Jesus put him and, uh, himself and his top three ranked disciples automatically into the quarterfinals, and the remaining nine had to play off in three groups of three with the winner and the best place loser on points difference going through to the quarterfinals. That caused further eruptions. So you can see why the whole thing started to fall apart. Uh, the Easter Bunny, however. We've never looked at the origin of the Easter Bunny before. Um, uh, Chris, any ideas? Was it Jesus' secret wife? Uh, but no. Born, um, born a- from an egg on a mountaintop? Uh, close. Um, it was, of course, uh, well, the origin was explained in the Gospel according to uh, St. Jack, the most arrogant of all the Gospel <laughs> writers, old uh, cocky St. Jack, patron saint of France and seafood, of course. Uh, the Easter Bunny was a little rabbit who appeared uh, during uh, the crucial fiction at uh, Golgotha. He looked up at the not very happy Jesus on the cross and said, Hey, what's up, Doc? <laughs> um, Jesus, of course, known as Doc by his followers due to his incredible skills at alternative medicine. Although, of course, he wasn't actually a qualified doctor. Uh, not a qualified doctor, Jesus. Uh, failed his exams because in the uh, practical, he turned all the other students' saline drips into vodka. Um, Jesus uh, replied, uh, Is it not clear what's up, my big-eared friend? I'm up! That's what's up! Anyway, the Easter Bunny scuttled off and brought Jesus back uh, a carrot, uh, which was, uh, but he was, it was spotted by a hungry centurion who shouted, Septimus, we found ourselves some dinner. And uh, just... Uh, as uh, the rabbit was about to be speared by the centurion, Jesus uh, miracled the Easter bunny into a mud-covered rock, hence the tradition of eating chocolate rabbits. That is a fact. Totally believable. There you go. I mean, is it a fact, Andy? Well, I mean, who knows? <laughs> uh, I mean, when it comes to... That's the great thing with uh, history, is a lot of it was a long time ago, and, uh, you know, that, that, that fine line between... I mean, it's hard enough to find out what is a fact or a lie from something that has happened yesterday. So something that's happened 2,000 years ago. Open season for me. Uh, a section of the Bugle is going in the bin. In fact, an April Fool's Day section. Uh, many newspapers, uh, news shows like to sneak in a fake story uh, on April Fool's Day. Classics include the BBC in 1957, covering the spaghetti harvest in Italy. Uh, ta- uh, <laughs> That's uh, that's footage on the internet. In 1996, Taco Bell announced that they had bought the Liberty Bell, one of the iconic artefacts of American history, and we're going to rename it the Taco Liberty Bell. In uh, the year 528 AD, uh, the daughter of Emperor Zhao Ming uh, of uh, Northern Wei was made <laughs> emperor as a male heir of the uh, um, by the Empress Dowager Hu, but she was deposed and replaced the very next day. I mean, that is a bad April Fool, isn't it? You're, uh, you're Emperor. Oh, hard luck. Uh, the know. Empress Dowager who? Uh, who? Uh, no, what? Um, uh, <laughs> when? Uh, <laughs> uh, not widely recognised, but the first female monarch in the history of China, albeit only for one glorious uh, funny day. I mean, that's better than most Australian politicians manage. <laughs> Um, good luck to our American listeners this year uh, on April Fool's Day, working out exactly what the f*** is an April Fool and what the f*** is just actual news. <laughs> uh, my favourite one was uh, the uh, news uh, that the Queen, uh, this was, uh, I think, back in uh, 1968, 
was being fitted with a propeller on her crown. <laughs> so she could literally, quite literally, reign over us. But uh, the Hatlicopters, uh, sadly, uh, never actually came into existence. So, but somewhere in this audio newspaper for April Fool's Day is an actual fact, Bugler. So see, <laughs> see if you can spot it. Anyway, that section is going in the bin. Top story this week, cricket. Now, there's not often in the Bugle where I have led with cricket as a, as a top story, despite the fact that cricket clearly is universally acknowledged to be the greatest thing ever invented by humanity. Uh, this week, it's made the news around the world. And there's only one way cricket makes the news around the world, and that is when people have been cheating at it. And uh, this week, uh, much to the delights of all England cricket fans, uh, particularly after we got absolutely spanked in our recent series with Australia, it is Australia who have been caught cheating. And it has led to probably the biggest single crisis in the entire history of the Australian nation. Alice, I know you are uh, technically not a cricket fan for whatever reason. I'm not going to. I mean, judge you man, for you are. You're looking at the under-12s Bondi Waverley most improved player at this point. So, Okay, sorry, my mistake. But yes, indeed, Australian cricket has been rocked by a cheating scandal which undermines our sporting nation's reputation for being a sporting sporting nation, which is part of our (laughs) national identity, according to my dad. My dad often says, daughter, he calls me daughter, daughter, the Australians (laughs) have a reputation for fair play, apart from indigenous massacres and more famously the underarm bowling incident of 1981. (laughs) <laughs> which was a dastardly affair in which the less good Chapel brother did an underarm bowl, which was technically legal but very rude, like movie spoilers or leaving negative reviews on Pornhub. Uh, <laughs> but nearly. How much f- research did you do for that one? <laughs> Any research is too much. Uh, <laughs> Nearly 40 years later, the newest player on the Australian team, Cameron Bancroft, was caught on camera dropping a piece of gritty tape down his pants for what people are leaping to assume were not innocent sexually perverse ball-scuffing purposes, (laughs) but in fact nefarious game-related ball-scuffing purposes. Uh, Bancroft attempted to hide the tape in his pants, and when questioned by an umpire, he said he was just wiping the ball. I mean, we've all done. Let he who has never put a bit of gritty tape down his pants <laughs> cast the first stone. As uh, some now, yeah. <laughs> well, Andy, the but nation is in shock. Clearly, I mean, even even your prime minister, Malcolm Turnbull, has has found his his moral limit. Um, but being caught cheating and then compounded as Australia did, by admitting cheating after being caught cheating, which is the first rule of cheating at sport. Never fess up. Do they learn nothing from Lance Armstrong? Never fess up. Or colonialism. Well, yes, yes. I mean, if you start admitting things you've done wrong in countries like ours, Alice, then that is a floodgate you will struggle to close. Um, <laughs> now, as you said, the, the cheat for non-cricket fans, what they did, they were trying to alter the condition of the cricket ball um, uh, which deteriorates naturally over uh, the course of several hours. It's not like baseball; you have a you know, new ball pretty much every uh, every pitch. So it's quite a crucial part. And if you can make the ball move uh, more in the air, it's better for the bowling team. And Australia was trying to do that by um, and there are legal ways of doing it. You can shine it on your trousers. You can rub spit in it. You can uh, uh, sweat on it. You can look at it threateningly. You can abuse it. You can insult the leather about how its mother looked like a cow. All fair game in cricket. Um, <laughs> But uh, but it also, it, it's, it's inefficient. It doesn't always work. And what Australia did was think, oh, hang on. Uh, why don't we uh, get uh, a player to get a piece of sticky tape, cover it with dirt, and uh, rub the ball on the field 
Now, um, for those who are unaware of uh, of cricket as a sport, cricket is often filmed by <laughs> TV cameras when it is being broadcast on television. This it has in common with, for example, many other sports, and indeed, basically the whole of life itself now. The world <laughs> is permanently filmed. So I think this is what why Australia has reacted so badly to this. It's not just the fact that it's cheated, but the fact that it did it so unbelievably badly. And they passed a message out to Bancroft that he'd been spotted on cameras, and he then tried to hide the evidence, you say, by shoving it down the front of his trousers, um, you know, hard, as you say, to claim he just wanted to sand your lumpy junk. Uh, I mean, he could have claimed... Because it was just this yellow thing. You couldn't tell what it was on, on camera. He could have claimed he was merely feeding a cornflake to the luck, lucky team hamster, Ethel Jeff. Uh, that the <laughs> Always keeps hidden in the jockstrap of the junior member of the side and has done, of course, since uh, Warwick Armstrong's hamster back in 1921, of course. Um, so they had no choice, really, but to to fess up after attempting to slightly lie to the umpires by pretending uh, he was using something different. <laughs> well, it's also that the idea of a fair go is is endemic to the Australian character and, and cricket is, is a symbol of fairness in our society. The reason that cricket and fairness go hand in hand is that the idle colonial gentry who gave crit- cricket its incredibly relaxed attitude to how long a game should go on and how exciting it needs to be... <laughs> basically invented the idea of fairness and then they applied fairness as carefully and topically as a hemorrhoid salve, which is to say <laughs> that they used fairness mainly for rich assholes and not so much on the people they were murdering or stealing large swathes of land from or poor people. But, of course, that wasn't against the rules, which is more important. Right. I mean, how many, pe- how many murderers apply hemorrhoid ointment to their impending victims, Alice? I mean, not many, which is the point. It's just, it's just not cricket, Andy. So, uh, yes, yeah, strange times for Australian sport. The great thing about it, from an English perspective, is not that just that we lost to Australia recently 4-0 and we can now basically say, well, they were obviously cheating, and if they hadn't been cheating, we'd have won 5-0 probably. But uh, whilst this was going on, England were suffering one of their most humiliating defeats in their, t- in their cricketing history. Bowled out for 58 runs by New Zealand. At one point, they, they were 23 for 8. Only two, uh, two batsmen left for non-cricket fans. Set for the worst score in the history of Test Match Cricket that goes back to 1877. They just avoided that. But thanks to the glorious cheating of Australia, that's basically been forgotten about. We can just brush that <laughs> humiliating thrashing by New Zealand under the carpet. Um, or maybe that's why Australia did it. They did not want New Zealand getting any glory. <laughs> so they thought, oh, there's only one. We're going to have to take this on ourselves. <laughs> In other Australian news now, a South Australian woman has been captured sunbaking on the picturesque Port Willunga Beach while an intimate wedding ceremony took place just metres away. The picture was <laughs> captured by a fellow Adelaide resident and posted to the Shit Adelaide Instagram page, which exists. <laughs> Uh, the woman who took the picture told the Daily Mail that she didn't think the woman noticed the wedding, saying she was just a metre away. It was pretty funny. <laughs> I mean, I think it's uh, very brave of her to stay in the way of a wedding because the last thing you want is wedding tan lines where there's just a little outline of what statistics seem to indicate as a 50-50 coin toss on the future happiness of a pair of strangers. <laughs> but look, maybe she was playing the part of a metaphor. Marriage is about dealing with the unexpected sunbathers in the pristine sands of your life. <laughs> That's a beautiful way of putting it, uh, Alice. But I guess, you know, you know she was there first. Um, I mean, there's a number of good reasons why she shouldn't. I mean, if you start moving for weddings, then 
where will it end? <laughs> Glo- global chaos, clearly. Um, she's a product of the Trumpian era. If she moves for that wedding, then, frankly, the entire population of Mexico is going to invade Texas by the end of the week. Uh, it could also have been a protest against heterosexual wedding in Australia, which remains legal, um, even though uh, a homosexual wedding uh, has now been legalised. You would have thought, you know, there's only room for one sort of wedding in Australia, so maybe it's her, her little blast against that. But I think a further question is, what were these people having a wedding on the beach for, unless they are hardline Poseidon worshippers, or, <laughs> uh, I, mean, I mean, also the dangers of it, because weddings attract whales. This is, this is well known, <laughs> and we've seen this played out tragically in Australia, because whales are a notoriously romantic creature. They just, they just love a wedding. They absolutely love a wedding. I mean, that is all whale song. All whale song is just them doing Gregorian chants. Yeah, so uh, could have had tragic uh, repercussions. There's only six things you should do on a beach for me, Alice. Mm-hmm. I'm not a beach fan. My skin tone does not respond well to the concept of sunlight. <laughs> so for me, there's only six things you should ever do on a beach. One, play beach cricket, obviously. Correct. Two, try to scoop the water out of the sea to counteract rising sea levels. <laughs> uh, three, scream, shark, shark. Um, four, scream, oi, plastics, get back here, you little bastards. We've all got to do our bit. Uh, five, you should get off the beach. Or six, you should get divorced. For, for me, <laughs> a, a beach is a much better, much better location for a divorce than a, than a, than a wedding. Uh, I haven't really thought through the, the logic of that, but I guess you know it's that it's that you know that barrier between the the cold past of the sea and a, a more fertile land of of the future. It's a liminal and lawless space, the beach. You can send them off into a riptide. Testify. (laughs) (laughs) In Pauline Hanson news now, embarrassing red-headed politician who won't go away, Pauline Hanson, (laughs) has announced that she is comparable to Nelson Mandela, which is so ironic given that she's famous mainly for racism. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but also for being the whitest woman in the world. <laughs> well, so so what what drove her to make make this comparison? Well, she feels like she is a pol- politician who's standing up for her beliefs despite uh, aggressive responses by sane people and people with compassion and non-racists. Uh, and so she's also she's also been in jail. <laughs> so right. How how long was she in jail for? Oh, I I don't know. Not long enough is the answer. Oh, so I'm just looking at eleven weeks. Now that is less than from memory, it's less than twenty seven years, isn't it? I mean that that is the long march to freedom, right there. Right. They do have other similarities, though. To be fair to uh, uh, to Pauline, um, uh, other than the fact they both spent time in in jail, uh, Nelson Mandela never sang backing vocals on a track by the American heavy metal band Motley Crue, uh, <laughs> nor, has, nor has Pauline Hanson. Both Pauline and Nelson have at times utilised a bench. Uh, <laughs> neither Mandela nor Hanson have ever had to wrestle an angry alien live on global television with the future <laughs> of the planet and humanity at stake, which is uh, lucky for everyone on both counts. Uh, neither has ever met Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, both are uh, were known at times to blink using their eyelids. And uh, Nelson Mandela, <laughs> sadly uh, dead, uh, Pauline Hansen uh, dead on the inside. So um, it's, uh, they have, they're, they're peas in a... They are very much peas in a political pod. We can only hope 
that at Pauline Hansen's funeral they have excellent bad sign language interpretation. <laughs> yes, there are differences. Um, I guess a long term. I'm I'm going to I'm going to confidently predict long term that Mandela will have more streets and public buildings named after him than Pauline Hansen. <laughs> you have to remember history. Pauline Hansen is doubling up with the uh, famous boy band Hansen. <laughs> Yes, it's uh, well. I guess I think even those two combined, I still think Nelson has the edge. <laughs> in other cheating news, uh, it turns out that there's not only cheating in cricket, but also in politics. <laughs> um, uh, who who would have thought it? This country has been rocked to its very foundations by the allegation by a former employee of Cambridge Analytica turned whistleblower that the Vote Leave campaign may have cheated to get around spending controls in the Brexit campaign. Uh, around about £600,000 of, uh, of um, funding could have uh, been used dodgily. Uh, now, to our American listeners, £600,000 of spending in an election campaign. That is... Uh, that is a drop in an ocean of shit. Um, but could the Leave campaign have swayed the Brexit vote by cheating? Um, to be honest, it's a bit late for us to start giving a shit about that, frankly. Um, flagrant bullshitting, more of an issue than a little bit more of uh, election funding. The fact that the Leave campaign won uh, votes through their lies and dissembling um, is surely far, far more important than a few hundred grand of extra campaign funding. And as a Remain fan who was disappointed that the lies and assembling of the Remain campaign were far less effective, I find that completely unacceptable. <laughs> uh, and I guess I guess the thing with funding is you want people to be able to fund their bullshit and lies equally. Um, so uh, Michael Gove, uh, God rest his soul, he has claimed that the vote was free and fair and that both sides were free to lie as much as they wanted and it was fair and it was equally badly argued and prepared for by both sides. If these cheat allegations are proven, though, will there be... Another referendum. Uh, I'm not sure there is the need for that. I think with the way technology is going, we just need virtual reality headsets for everyone so we can live out the European future we choose to live out. <laughs> given that the, our, our world is 99% perception anyway, we might as well just fully embrace it. Besides, it's, uh, it's politics, and cricket is far more important. There are, there are levels of behaviour and ethics expected in cricket, but politics, you know, it's a results business. So we shouldn't replay the ashes then? Uh, After all their ball tampering. Oh well, to, to be honest, I'm not sure I could face England getting thrashed again without that excuse. Let's just cling to the excuse. If you do not think all sides are cheating in politics in some way, uh, you have not been paying attention for at least the last two and a half thousand years. I like uh, the things that have come out of this story that I very much enjoy. Is the first is that the Cambridge Analytica group apparently chose its name in order to emphasise its close ties to Cambridge University, with whom it has no official deal. And as an ex-Cambridge alumna, I'm mostly angry that they haven't used their evil powers to convince more people to buy tickets to my solo show. <laughs> which is at least as much against their long-term political interests as Brexit, if I do say so myself. Uh, and the second thing is that Cambridge Analytica said it played no role in the Brexit referendum and said Mr Wiley had no direct knowledge of its work after he left the firm in July 2014, accusing him of, quote, peddling false information, speculation and completely unfounded conspiracy theories, continuing, that's our job. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yes, it's very hard to separate the 
the shit from the slightly less shit in uh, in such matters. Um, <laughs> still, it's not that long to go until uh, the end of time. So uh, <laughs> this will just seem just seem like pointless frippery. In fiction and weaponry news now, young anti-gun activists in the US are fighting for their right to not be shot, but also doing it with a lot of Harry Potter placards. And they are facing increasing criticism from the right for using Harry Potter analogies in their protests, speeches and placards. Many on the right wing are calling out the young protesters for taking he who must not be named's name in vain, reminding us all that Harry Potter is a work of fiction and not a blueprint for how to organise your life, to which everyone else says, yeah, duh, at least it's better than organising your life with reference to sex in the city, where everyone was all like, oh my god, you're such a Miranda, and I had to pretend to know who Miranda was. I mean, running your life according to a long-running serial work of fiction is as good a way to do things as any, though I'm not super keen on the current trend among conservative politicians to choose as their guiding work The Lord of the Flies, which, (laughs) while a seminal coming-of-age novel and brutal reflection on the nature of young masculinity outside the confines of civilised society, is not a great roadmap for, for example, healthcare funding. (laughs) Well, I guess it's, you know, that or the Bible, which is, Similar long-running fiction in, in some ways. Um, there are the uh, huge marches in, in America, uh, the March for Our Lives across America, hundreds of thousands of people marching uh, in favour of people not being gunned down as they go about their daily business. And it, it does seem that America has finally reached a tipping point where there's a generational shift, where enough people now do not want to be gunned down as they go about their daily business. And that's now started to critically outmass those who do want to see other people gunned down as they go about their daily business and simultaneously be able to protect themselves from marauding dinosaurs. I guess there have been similar marches before in the past, but perhaps this could be the moment when uh, America finally has some vague vestiges of sense blasted into it. Um, The gun lobby, uh, or uh, uh, the pro-death lobby, as they're also known, um, (laughs) quite literally won't go down without a fight um as uh, and you know they've they've you hear them chanting out their their catchphrases so USA 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 for example which stands for unbelievably stupid anachronism uh, <laughs> um, I, I i do understand that it it is you know it's an awkward thing you know historically you want to respect the founding philosophies of the American nation, the eternal truths and wisdoms of the Amendment Squad, as they may or may not have meant them in 1791. And you don't want to abandon those nation-defining thoughts, but at the same time, you're not entirely comfortable with the deaths of innocent people. It's kind of a kill-22 situation with no (laughs) obvious answer. There's no obvious answer, especially if you continually ignore the obvious answer. I mean, the problem for me is that the Harry Potter books were that bandwagon that everyone jumped on that made nerds and book reading cool and I was the kid that was nerdy before it was cool to be nerdy you know I read books in trees like an Enid Blyton asshole it's not cool when becoming a nerd becomes cool when you're a nerd because then you lose the one thing that makes nerd life tolerable which is feeling superior to the idiots who are bullying you I also (laughs) I also just missed the Hermione window so when I was a right. frizzy haired know it all who couldn't keep her mouth shut, it was less, oh cool, Emma Watson, hashtag I'm with her, and more, let's throw sandwiches at it. <laughs> <laughs> Bugle feature section now The Earth. Now, it's a terrific planet in many ways for all its flaws, but one of the great questions that continues to dog 
this planet is, is it flat or not? <laughs> we are still waiting for confirmation uh, on this, and the latest piece of scientific research has been conducted by a man named Mike Hughes in California, who built his own rocket, a steam-powered rocket, <laughs> fired himself... 600 metres above the desert, <laughs> then plummeted back to the planet, which he was researching, uh, suffering quite serious injuries. Uh, but he, he survived thanks to deploying a, a, a parachute. He says uh, <laughs> his mission was to prove the Earth was flat. Uh, he didn't quite get high enough to, to prove that, but I think 600 metres, no-one's ever been been higher than that before, they? <laughs> from from memory. Um but it's—I mean—it's this—it's heroic for someone to continue to do the research that other people shy away from. I mean, my favourite quote is: "He's known as Mad Mike Hughes, and he wanted to prove that the Earth was flat, saying, quote, I don't believe in science.'" <laughs> <laughs> he said, "I know about aerodynamics yes. and fluid dynamics and how things move through the air, about certain sizes of rocket nozzles and thrust, but that's not science. That's just a formula. There's no." D- <laughs> I mean, what does he... I mean, his main sponsor for the rocket is Research Flat Earth, a group of people around, sorry, across the world who believe that the Earth is flat. (laughs) Many of them also suggest that Australia is a myth, which, if it is, I need to have a stern chat with about 25 million of my close friends about where we've been living all this time. I mean, in some ways it is a relief because we can stop pretending kangaroos are real and we can send Hugh Jackman back to the factory. (laughs) Uh, He said, do I believe the earth is shaped like a frisbee? I believe it is. Do I know for sure? No. (laughs) That's why I want to go up in space. Um, Unfortunately, uh, every single airline flight he could have got was fully booked uh, between uh, now and the end of time. So he had to make his own make his own rocket. Um, but, you know, I think it's good. People, you have to challenge orthodoxy. That is how science progresses. That is how, you know, would George Stevenson have invented the train if he'd gone along with the prevailing orthodoxy at the time that the mechanical eight-legged auto donkey was the future of transport? No, <laughs> he would not. And, you know, you go back, you know, Copernicus... Galileo, would they have discovered that the Earth was round... Oh, hang on, no, I don't want to go down this road. I don't want to go down that road at all. Look, Mad Mike has said this is great publicity for him. It's got a bunch of storylines. He says, the garage built thing, I'm an older guy, it's out in the middle of nowhere, plus the flat Earth. But he admits that since there was no footage of him getting into the rocket, some are questioning whether or not he actually launched, saying, quote, the problem is it brings out all the nuts, people questioning everything. It's the downside of all this. <laughs> um, that's uh, it's glorious, frankly. Uh, so, if any buglers can confirm whether or not the world is round or flat, uh, <laughs> do email us in to hello buglers at the Particularly if you have conclusive proof that it is that it is flat, because uh, that's what the politicians want you to believe it's round, because uh, they get money out of it. <laughs> In slightly more positive news for humanity, as a species, Alice, we've uh, always been defined by our constant restless quest for new boundaries to break, new realms to explore, (laughs) and new achievements to carve into the pages of our history. And that is why, for example, we went to the moon, climbed Everest, raced to the South Pole, and invented sports. Uh, But this week, another great landmark in the history of human landmarks was marked on land, the largest meeting of sausage dogs in human history. (laughs) 
For the first time, Sausage Dog smashed their tiny-legged way through the 500 Sausage Dog barrier. People thought it could never be done at a meeting on a beach in Cornwall. 601 Sausage Dogs met simultaneously, and it showed that we will not let the forces of hatred win. Take that, Isis. Shove these 601 little doglets up your asses, you dog-gathering-hating weirdos. This is how little chance you have of winning over the British public. OK, Isis, you've persuaded us. We've come round to your skewed idea of a bloodthirsty pre-medieval caliphate of slaughter and misogyny. But I'm sorry, we've got a real problem with you uh, not letting us try to break the world record for lar- largest gatherings of specific species of dogs. So I'm afraid it's a no. We're not, we're not taking you on. I mean, it's an incredible thing, Andy. Sausage dogs came together from all over the UK, allegedly to beat the record, but actually to unite their political power towards a more sausage dog-based economic policies in what is being called the Bilderberg Conference for the World's Most Sausagey Dogs. These, <laughs> these little-legged, long-paunched plutocrats patted along the sands of Pier and Porth Beach, smoking teeny dog cigars and discussing brand integrity like mini Forbes 500 wealth management moguls, but heaps more cute. Reporters gathered to glean scraps of information about from the owners of these low-slung business dogs, hoping to find out what the future holds for the stumpy industrialists and their doggy agenda. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a nice thing that they're all coming together. They're, you know, yeah. an evolutionary dead end. They're disenfranchised wolf descendants, constantly confused by their own stubby failure to embody the true wolf spirit, and their continued existence is powered purely by selective inbreeding and people's desire to take cool photos on Instagram and revel in the glory of owning a life form that shouldn't really exist. <laughs> I think Alice's message there was paid for by the Badger Association of the United <laughs> Kingdom. <laughs> Again, it sends a very powerful message to the world, particularly Vladimir Putin. It shows that we, we are not scared of you in Russia. We shall gather our dogs on the beaches. We shall <laughs> gather our dogs on the landing grounds. We shall gather our little doggies in the fields and in the streets and in the hills and we shall never sausagely surrender. <laughs> we have uh, just one other piece of uh, world news. Uh, it's just come through this morning, actually. Uh, uh, rubber ducks are more dangerous than terrorists. Um, <laughs> in, in some ways. It was the front, front page of today's... <laughs> Front page of today's newspaper. <laughs> says, uh, rubber ducks are so filthy they can kill. Um, <laughs> which, uh, yeah, front page of the newspaper today. Rubber ducks are so filthy they can kill. Uh, they grow these uh, fungals and bacterioids. Um, and uh, that scientists, grow up scientists, did a 10 week experiment and found that uh, rubber ducks can be extremely unhealthy uh so it does suggest that rubber ducks are definitely more dangerous than terrorists at bath time uh because yeah over if you over prolonged periods the the ducks can uh, can grow these collections of uh disease making bacteria whereas uh, if you leave a terrorist in the bath for 10 weeks it just gets cold wet wrinkly and interestingly demotivated uh, so <laughs> it could work but um also rubber ducks are poisonous if mashed, mashed up and eaten in a little pancake with plum sauce. So I guess the question, Alice, for all parents around the world, uh, should you make your child bathe with a real duck instead? Or would a rubber Andean condor ironically be healthier for your child to play with as a non-aquatic bird just ominously circling over your child's cot before bedtime? I mean, I think all children should be given terrorists to play with because what terrorist isn't soothed by a child? Let us not answer that question. (laughs) 
competition result time now, and well, this now goes back quite a long time. Uh, we did have a competition to win a place on the Bilderberg Group um, uh, a couple of months ago now, and uh, well, because of the high-level nature of the discussions uh, and judging panel, it's taken a while to get um, the uh, elite cabal of uh, high-level operators together to decide uh, on a winner. The competition was to finish this sentence. To win your place as one of the most influential behind-the-scenes operators in the world. Uh, I think it is best if the biggest decisions affecting the planet are conducted covertly by an elite cabal of bankers, politicians and oligarchs because... dot dot dot. And, uh, well, thank you for all those who sent in um, uh, sent in uh, entries for the competition. This came from uh, Tom Page, uh, who says, because having it done overtly would be like watching the sausages made before you eat them. It would be the worst idea ever. <laughs> so I managed to crowbar in a sausage pun. Uh, you are talking to the right show, if that's your way of ingratiating yourselves with the judges. That's very much the uh, bugle competition equivalent of um, ice skaters sticking their pert behinds towards the judging panel as they skate past. <laughs> um, James from uh, Maryland uh, says, uh, I think it's best if these decisions are done covertly by the elite cabal because as a white middle-aged anglo-saxon male i think they're doing a fantastic job <laughs> so there we, why is it at last someone is standing up for us um uh, dean from leeds says uh, because they are the group with enough resources to create a jurassic park style museum of hotties from history clones oh yeah <laughs> that's there's a lot to be said for that um and uh jerry smith I think it's best if the biggest decisions affecting the planet are conducted covertly by an elite cabal of bankers, politicians and oligarchs because f*** you, that's why. <laughs> and that, I mean, that's not so much uh, you know, an, an entry to the competition as a bald stating of the status quo. So I think that probably qualifies as a winner, to be honest, unless we're going for the... It's between that and the, the, the one that had a pun in it. What do you reckon, Alice? You can be the official judge. I like the one with the pun in it, Andy. Oh, okay. you too. Tom Page... You are now a member of the Bilderberg Group. Do uh, report to... Uh, I'm sure they'll be in touch, so just report to whatever secret location their next meeting <laughs> is being held in. And please, please be merciful. Do keep your emails coming in uh, to hellobuglers at thebuglepodcast.com. That brings us to the end of this week's Bugle. Uh, don't forget that you can, for the next... What, three and a half weeks, Alice? See Alice Fraser's uh, show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Alice, give it the proper plug. Uh, I'm doing my solo show, Ethos, from the 29th of March to the somethingth of April. And I'm also doing my <laughs> tr- trilogy on the 21st of April at 4pm, which is after the Bugle. I'm doing my last three one-hour solo shows in one three-hour solo show, which will be exhausting, over-ambitious, and quite possibly an enormous disappointing failure. And that's just for the audience. Uh, it's... <laughs> Should get some of Daniel Kitson's fans along. Come on! <laughs> uh, it's being recorded for the ABC in Australia, so I've already been having nightmares about doing three hours of comedy to two deeply unimpressed people, both of whom are my dad. So uh, come along to Ethos, come along to the trilogy. Also, come to The Bugle on the 15th. I'm in it. Yes, The Live Bugle on the 15th features Alice and uh, David O'Doherty. The Live Bugle on the 22nd of April uh, features Tom Ballard and Aditi Mittal. My one-man show, Right Questions, Wrong Answers, all new for Melbourne uh, 2018, runs from the 10th to the 22nd. I'm then doing two shows in Sydney on the 23rd and 24th as part of the Sydney Comedy Festival. Then uh, to New Zealand, I'm in Wellington on the 30th of April and Auckland on the 1st and 2nd of April. Thereafter, we have the Radiotopia Tour, 
uh, the Radiotopia live tour in which I'm doing the Joint Bugle Illusionist mashup as part of the show uh, with uh, with Helen. Um, and live bugle dates in America, the 15th of May at Cobbs in San Francisco, the 17th of May at the Alberta Rose in Portland, and the 19th of May at the Neptune in Seattle. Co-hosts to be confirmed, but uh, do come along uh, to the first Bugle live shows in America, and uh, we hope to come to the East Coast and elsewhere uh, later in the year. That's all for this week's Bugle. We're having a week off next week, uh, because I'm on holiday with the family before heading to uh, Melbourne, but we will put out some prime cuts of classic Bugle stroke my stand-up. Um, and uh, then the the next full bugle will be uh, the, uh, from the live show on the 15th of April with Alice and David O'Doherty. See you all there. Until next time, goodbye. Bye. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth, Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss line bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now.